A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. It's lunchtime in Paris. Chefs are writing their menus on chalkboards. Waiters are setting tables. The wine carafes are stacked. Customers begin arriving. And scenes like this are playing out in bistros and canteens all across France. (laughs) Meanwhile, in her office at the University of Strasbourg in northeastern France, an English teacher named Caitlin Platchy furtively pokes her head into the hallway, looks both ways. Seeing no one, she carefully clicks the door closed, returns to her desk, and in the glow of her computer screen, she pulls out a salad and records this voice memo. My name is Caitlin. I have a workplace cultural challenge, which is currently I'm sitting in my office hiding because it's lunchtime. At lunchtime in France, um, people generally take an hour and a half or two hours and eat and try not to talk about work. But I come from the U.S. and I love a productive lunch. (laughs) There's even a law in France that forbids workers from eating at their desk. And that is my workplace cultural challenge. (laughs) Thanks so much. Wait, what did you say? Is forbidden. There's a law against eating lunch at your desk. Can you read this sentence for me? This is the Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Today, we got a story from our friends at Rough Translation. It's an NPR podcast that tells stories from far off places that hit close to home. On this season of Rough Translation, they're traveling the globe to see how people are shifting their relationship to their jobs, which is why Caitlin Platchy sent them that voice memo. Here's Rough Translation host Gregory Warner. So we called back Caitlin, the listener who sent us that voicemail. Well, I hope you realize that I realize this is the pettiest thing that I could write you about. (laughs) My lunch break is too long and too relaxing. (laughs) She told us she's been living in France since she graduated seven years ago. She's engaged to be married this summer to a French guy. So she's here in France for the long haul. And she doesn't want to have to feel like a criminal every time she checks off her to-do list at lunch. Caitlin says she has been a rebel against the French lunch break since her first job in France. Oh, yeah. I had an internship in an NGO. And so it was mandated that we take our lunch break. But take your lunch break literally meant like go outside. And sometimes the weather was terrible. And in the first week, I didn't have any friends. And so I would eat my lunch quickly and then like make laps around the neighborhood. Like, what are you supposed to do? Uh, You can't come back to your desk. 
And what would be actually the punishment for coming back to your desk? It was just really looked down on. My boss at the time did explain to me, uh, I think you're not appreciating the full length of time that you should be taking for lunch. <laughs> it's like the opposite of a conversation with a boss you might expect, right? Indeed, <laughs> it was. To lunch longer. Right. And so we decided to find out the logic behind this strange law and maybe convince one American to leave work at work. If you succeed, whereas all of the French people in my life have not succeeded, this would be impressive. Okay, we have it on record. <laughs> Here we go. Caitlin was quick to point out that she does not have a problem with long lunch breaks on occasion. I can appreciate spending time in a specific way and saying, okay, for two hours, we're putting it all aside. We're not looking at our phones. We're not talking about work. And that's good. But I just don't want someone to dictate that I have to do that every day. Wouldn't it be enough for the government to protect our time, to tell employers they have to give us a break for lunch, instead of also mandating where the employees have to eat it? But are you surprised that this is written down in the law? No, I, I knew it. So when our reporter Katz Laszlo interviewed lunchgoers at two bistros, almost no one was surprised that the country would have such a law. They said this is just French tradition. Lots of people told us some version of this, that to understand this law, you just have to look at French culture. But the real story, it turns out to be kind of the opposite. Good to meet you, Professor. Oh, you can say Martin. Professor Martin Bruegel is a food culture historian at the French National Research Institute for Agriculture, Food, and the Environment. And when we get on the subject of working lunches, he tells me about a recent debate that broke out at his own workplace. On lunchtime seminars, whether they were uh, useful. When the lunchtime seminar, the American brown bag, was proposed at Martin's Institute, professors protested. Uh, lunchtime seminars were considered as socially regressive, intellectually insufficient, and so on, uh, because uh, you needed a break in your your work time. And that brown bag debate is still ongoing there, or was it resolved? <laughs> the solution is that uh, seminars happen, but the sandwiches are not eaten during the seminar, but in the end. <laughs> <laughs> So lunch is lunch and work is work. Keep the sandwiches aside from the seminars. This was exactly the kind of social code that had sent Caitlin scurrying back to her office with her salad. Oh, yeah. Like when she does sometimes go out with her colleagues at lunch. I do go out with them and I love spending time with them. I will often try to talk about work. And that's when they'll remind me of being like, oh, this is our off time. Let's talk about that later. Because it really, they've grown up with this idea that you have to make a separation between lunch and work. And when you're at lunch, you're not at work. But have they ever, have they ever actually tried to say, listen, our way is better, and here's why? I don't think any of my colleagues have. This question, why, it's the reason that I called Martin, the food culture historian. Jeepers, there is a law that regulates how we sit down to eat during the workday. So that got me started. He got very interested in the origins of the French lunch law. The story Martin tells begins in the wake of the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century. 
as the economy developed, the distance between someone's residence and the workplace increased. More and more workers were spending most of their day stuck inside workplaces. Now, workplace in the 1890s, as you might imagine, were health hazards. Thermometer makers got mercury poisoning. Matchbook makers got fossy jaw. There was dust. There were fumes. And it wasn't just the toxic chemicals in factories. Even uh, department stores, they discovered that uh, there were more microbes per cubic feet than outside. (laughs) People worried about workers' life expectancy. Lack of fresh air was seen as a culprit. The saying was that we have to flush the work sites as we flush toilets. Mechanical ventilation wasn't really a thing, so instead they decided to open the windows. We get the dirt out. When can we do that? What is the best time to do it? Well, it's when people usually eat. Lunchtime. And so legislators passed a new decree. Article 8 <laughs> said that work sites had to be ventilated during eating breaks. Shut down the machines. And Article 9 said work sites had to be evacuated during eating breaks. Get the people outside and open the windows to let the air in. That was the big public health insight of 1894. And man... Was it controversial? So people would spill over into the street, which became a problem in itself. Which led to other problems. Crowded streets, uh, littered parks, uh, harassment of women in the streets. The first women's strike, actually, by the seamstresses, was about the right to eat in their workplace. (laughs) A female labor inspector commented in her yearly report for 1901, the enforcement of this law, quote, appears tyrannical to the women and girls who, living far from their workplace, have taken up the habit of bringing in their already prepared lunch. They wanted to go back because they thought the eating in the streets was not seemly and eating in restaurants was too expensive for them. What was the argument on the other side? Was there some very determined immunologist? Was there a Tony Fauci of, the, of France who was <laughs> like a czar of the hygiene or something? <laughs> no. It had much to do with the political structure in France. You know, it's very centralized. It also happens that there was a heavy deputation of doctors in the National Assembly. Doctors armed with legislative power in an assembly that was just, let's point out, all men. The seamstresses would protest for 10 years before they'd get some exception to the law. But meanwhile, restaurants and workers started to adjust, and people's food habits started to change. The moments in the day when the French eat are extremely codified. I mean, you have breakfast between 7 and 8.30, lunch between noon and 1.32. That you can observe throughout the 20th century. But did the law, you feel, solidify that? 
I think it does, yeah. One of the aspects that has been neglected in the research on eating times in French history is the impact of the law. I've definitely had this conversation with my fiancé because at home we have to decide how we eat, when we eat. Again, our listener, Caitlin. And my eating snacks at random times was not conducive to his idea of set meal times. And so he's definitely tried to convince me that this the, this is the better way to go. It hasn't worked yet. <laughs> it hasn't worked? No. So what is he, what, what if any arguments has he made? Well, the whole idea that you eat better if you're not snacking, you appreciate the food, food is meant to be shared with conviviality and you have to sit down and enjoy it. I hear that. I just don't buy it. Notice the arguments that Caitlin's fiancé does not make. He doesn't say that the reason French adopted this approach is because mechanical ventilation hadn't been invented yet and they needed to protect worker hygiene. He doesn't make an argument about work at all. His argument is about food and the values around eating it. Martin says this is the great misunderstanding of most French people today to think that the French lunch break was invented to protect the lunch. I mean, the reason why uh, eating was regulated had nothing to do with the actual content of the plate or so, and everything with the environment in which the meal was taken. So maybe the way to help Caitlin with her workplace cultural challenge was to make a case for the French lunch break that she had not heard before. Not about the importance of food, and not about the nature of being French, but hard, cold research about why a lunch break outside the job is better for work. The only question was, would Caitlin buy it? I came into this totally prepared to defend my American productivity, and I think my argument is crumbling. Coming up, Rough Translation makes the case. Stick around. Advertisements, yummy. In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in, like, in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, a smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line... 
They take cruising to another level and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn Best Buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. They got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's Sticks? They're wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate. I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. In last week's show, I talked with Sola and Ham El-Waley, who are chefs and YouTube stars and married to each other. Sola and Ham first met in culinary school, where they bonded over their interest in some obscure ingredients. We were both really into the Alinea cookbook, and then we talked about hydrocolloids and Hydro foams, what? hydrocolloids, xanthan gum, iota. Gelin. Ooh, gelin is the most romantic of all the hydrocolloids. <laughs> And like Hessen Blumenthal had this series on BBC called In Search of Perfection. Oh, we, we loved that. Loved that show. Oh. We would just like, we would just cuddle up in the dorms on a small <laughs> laptop and then just watch these episodes over and over and over again. So you're nerds. Yep. Basically nerds. We're, we, we, bonded, we bonded over being nerds. This episode is so much fun. We talk about our best restaurant dessert ideas and the way Sola and Ham cook together at home. Then we take a call from a married couple fighting over pancakes. You got to check it out. It's up now. Okay, back to Rough Translation. The virus is hitting Europe with its full force. This is Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. Back with various restrictive measures to control COVID spread. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley has more. In February of 2021, deaths from COVID-19 in France were on the rise. President Emmanuel Macron is said to be conflicted as he huddles with scientific advisors. He knows the government had closed restaurants. It was telling workers to stay at home. And so perhaps it was inevitable that the lunch break law born in one public health crisis was suspended in another. France would no longer require people to leave work during lunch 
And for some conservative commentators, this was a cause for celebration. C'est-à-dire qu'un pays où la loi te dit où est-ce que tu dois déjeuner, donc tu dois le faire dans une... Why should the government regulate eating, they said. This is typical bureaucratic overreach, which Martin did not like very much. I felt it was my responsibility as a historian, but also as a citizen. Martin feared that President Macron heading into an election might appease the conservatives by abolishing this law permanently. And Martin, as an historian, had seen how culture change can come in times of crisis. So he sat down at his computer to research the reasons that workers would still need this piece of the labor code in the 21st century. He poured through trade journals, ergonomic studies, happiness research, compiling every scientific argument he could find for lunching outside work. Hey, uh, Caitlin, you there? Yeah, hi. And so when I called Caitlin back, I came armed with Martin's research. If you succeed, whereas all of the French people in my life have not succeeded, this would be impressive. Okay, we have it on record. <laughs> Here we go. Um, let me make a health argument. A full lunch break tracks with better health outcomes because you're not snacking so much. There's less depression, less burnout, more job satisfaction. I mean, people are just simply happier to take a break, uh, some downtime during the workday. It's good for their well-being. What do you say to those? Ah, more happiness and job satisfaction. I don't know. I'm pretty happy and I don't feel overstressed. What stresses me out is when I have to step away and I know what's on my to-do list and I can't get anything done on my lunch break. Okay, productivity. I really like productivity. Okay, if you like productivity. So here's an argument. The French love to say that with their 35-hour work week, they're, they're, they're actually more productive. Much more productive than what is usually said about them. And one of the arguments is this idea of segmented time. So if you know you have to get everything done before noon and you can't do anything until 1.30, you're going to get everything done in those three hours. Okay, that I buy a little bit because our meetings are incredibly productive. We've shortened the max length of our meetings down to like 40 minutes. Case closed? Uh, not so fast. It's difficult as a teacher because I have classes in the afternoon, and when I get done with class, I just want to go home. And so my colleagues will stay pretty late. They'll stay until 7 trying to get stuff done for the next day. And I'm thinking, you could have done that at lunchtime. Right. You want to get it all done before you leave. Okay. So far, I was not doing well. But there was another argument that Martin had mentioned and actually, the argument we heard most often in the French bistros. The taking a break with co-workers made work more collaborative. Of course, of course. Uh, it's a moment of uh, sharing, uh, sharing thoughts, sharing... Uh, they said that it's easier to work together if you understand the way that they think. What they think, what they, they are, actually. And if you understand, why do they keep saying no to this thing I asked them to do? Why do they work like that? Oh, there's something going on in your life. Maybe that's why you're stressed. You eat, you drink, and you can't understand why. So you have less conflict, like yes. you have more understanding. It's only off the record. It makes our relationship stronger and 
it's easier for us after that to work together and like and a lot of people said that it made them care about their colleagues more uh, that it made conflict easier several people brought that up actually okay new argument there's fewer conflicts between coworkers when they know each other better in a non-work way meaning they've created connections with each other they know each other as people not just as colleagues that i buy you do buy. I buy it. Yeah, my colleagues and I get along really well because I know the names of their spouses and kids and, and we talk about life. Um, whereas that hasn't always been the case in other work environments where I haven't taken lunchtime with my colleagues. My colleague last week, his dad passed away and I knew every step of the way because every day we would check in. And so I knew how the progress was going and... Hmm. It, and it definitely helps create community in a way that's not difficult. In every good film noir, there is that moment when the private eye realizes his client has been concealing some key fact that will crack the case. Now, in this case, the key fact I was missing was probably my mistake. I had this image from her voicemail of her eating this secret solitary salad at her laptop. And so I had called Caitlin on a mission to convince her to share lunchtime with her colleagues. But now I realized I only had half the story. When I asked her to describe her ideal lunch, yeah, it starts with the salad and the to-do list alone. So I can eat my salad in peace, get a few things checked off my list. And then the ideal is when at that moment, my colleagues are coming back from their outside lunch and they're on their way for coffee time, which is in a separate spot and a separate place. And so I'll join them for the second half. You don't have to go out of your way to do it because that time is built into your day already. Think about everything she does not have to do. She doesn't have to schedule a lunch with her coworker. She doesn't have to think about whether they'll be busy or whether she'll be busy. She doesn't have to make a resolution to take more rest time or hope her coworker has done the same. It's all just built into the flow of the day. That's very true. And I think I've been in France for too long because I've started taking that for granted. That like, of course, we're all going to stop and go out at the same time. So it's easy for me to say that I love my productive lunch. But I think if I were to go back to a U.S. work environment, I would be shocked and frustrated that we don't have that collective moment. Really? I think so. That that seems, that's interesting. What do you mean? I mean, like you, you, you want to be in a place that has a shared lunch, you just don't always want to share it? I think that's it. Caitlin had found a workaround, a way to have her lunch and eat it too. Compromise! (laughs) Even the coffee time that she occasionally joins lasts longer than many Americans' entire lunch break. But the problem with Caitlin's compromise, and she knows this herself, is that if everyone took this on-demand approach to French lunching, there would be no collective lunch for her to duck in and out of. She's freeloading from everybody else's small talk. She's freeloading, right. I was talking about this with Katz Laszlo, who we sent to the French Bistro. None of my arguments, I told her, had seemed to change Caitlin's ways. And she brought up this other argument. And maybe another thing that she's missing is interacting with people in different fields. Uh, Bonjour. Yeah, there's like 
a famous actor here. Right now I just finished a period film. Who chats with a guy who's on his pension and is really from a whole different working class. And they know each other and they talk about their day and they know what's going on in each other's lives. There was another two people who I like walked up and assumed they were mother and son or something. And they were complete strangers who just wound up at the same table and were like, yeah, we're just having lunch together. And I think there's also like a sense of community in that and a sense of opening your mind because you're talking to people. And I think maybe that's something you would miss if you didn't go out. That is, uh, to me, the, the ideal lunch where things happen. Martin also makes this case for the value of random encounters on a lunch break. And the funny thing about this argument is that it's not really about making you happier or making you more productive or about greasing the relationship wheels with your coworkers. Martin says that there's just a value to lots of people collectively sharing space at the same time and talking about whatever. With unplanned conversations and unexpected rendezvous that might, just might, spark your next big idea or change your life. Is there any breakthrough or anything that's happened for you that wouldn't have happened without the shared lunch? Well, I might not have uh, met my wife. What is the story of how you met your wife, (laughs) if you don't mind telling it? (laughs) His love story... How do you say marionette? ...starts with a student of puppets. She was working at a national museum of popular arts and traditions to look at traditional puppets. She catches the eye of a food culture researcher. And I happen to go through there looking at popular food habits... And I saw her. I approached. But Martin does not want to be so bold as to just ask her out on a date. Enter. Petit à petit. uh, Shared lunch. We took lunch together. The social cost is lowered. He doesn't have to ask her out. He can just join her and her friends. And so that's how we got to know each other. You're saying the custom of the shared lunch gave you the courage to ask her out on a date. And the possibility also. (laughs) See, there is a lot going on in meals. From lunch, you can go to dinner and to the movies, and uh, the rest is history. (laughs) The history of rest, as Martin wrote it in his defense of the French lunch law, was followed by his hoped-for outcome. The suspension of the law was allowed to expire. The law was not abolished. It is, once again, forbidden to eat lunch at your desk in France. Caitlin told us she's actually okay with that. She's realized she'd rather live in a culture with a custom of shared lunch, even if it's not one that she always plans to share. If I were to conform to everything that French people want me to do, it wouldn't feel like me. There's enough things that are black and white in France that you have to do. (laughs) So I want some liberty on my lunchtime. Give me liberty or, yeah. (laughs) Or give me snacks. (laughs) Give me snacks. (laughs) Voici le poème glucosensuel de l'amour à forte dosée. 
parfois La vie est amère Mais crois-moi that was an episode of the NPR podcast, Rough Translation. It's a great show where they follow familiar conversations into unfamiliar territory. Like there was a recent episode they did about why a hyper-local newspaper in New York's Hudson Valley hired a Ukraine war correspondent. There's another one you should check out about a scooter thief in China who inspires a slacker revolution and attracts government surveillance in the process. They always find incredible and surprising stories on Rough Translation from NPR. Next week on The Sporkful, I meet up with Scott Wiener, who runs Scott's Pizza Tours in New York City. I dive deep into the mind of this man who is obsessed with pizza. He carries a thermometer with him that allows him to, from a distance, measure the temperature of the surface of the cheese on the pizza when it comes out of the oven, and he knows the exact temperature at which you will burn the roof of your mouth. That's how hardcore he is. He'll also show me his Guinness World Record-holding collection of pizza boxes. And we eat a few slices together, of course. While you're waiting for that one, don't forget to check out last week's show when Sola and Ham El Whaley resolve a listener dispute about pancakes. That one's up now. Rough Translation is hosted by Gregory Warner. Their team includes Adelina Lancianese, Pablo Arguez, Katz Laszlo, Luis Treas, Justine Yan, Tessa Paoli, Emily Bogle, Liana Simstrom, Bruce Oster, Josh Newell, Greta Pittenger, and Anya Grunman, with help from Eleanor Beardsley, Robert Krulwich, and Sana Krasikov. The French news tape you heard in this episode is from Radio France and Radio Monte Carlo. Music by John Ellis and First Com Music and Audio Network. The Sporkful is produced by me along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producer Andres O'Hara. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Eric Eddings. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Tanya Hudson in Sulphur, Louisiana, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Master Force Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Master Force tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.